0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, I'm so glad to be here. So good to see um, all of you. Many of you I haven't seen in a while. I've been busy. (laughs) So, you know, the the Buddha um, often began his teachings... By addressing the various monks and disciples and lay practitioners who had gathered around him, um, he often began by addressing them as "Oh nobly born, oh nobly born and so when we um, when we sit in this position upright and alert and really awake to whatever is happening, that's our practice, right? This, this is a really noble, it is a noble posture. It's a noble activity, isn't it? And what I see is that this practice that we do um, really cultivates um, or actually, I think, more uncovers um, within us the highest qualities that we can aspire to as human beings. Um, What are those qualities? The qualities of compassion and loving kindness, generosity, forgiveness. So it is a noble practice that we do. We sit with the same dignity and compassion for ourselves and for all living beings, really, that um, the great teachers and students all through the ages have sat with. So it is a noble practice. And I, I also think that our practice is a kind of renunciation, really. We, uh, we're we here and we're giving up an hour or two um, of pleasure, diversion, entertainment. I mean, our culture is so full of it, <laughs> really. Um, <clears throat> so it really is kind of an act of just sitting, is an act of renunciation. And I'm quite sure that uh, many of you here this morning... Um, have a really strong sense um, that what we give up in terms of the pleasures out there in the world is really worth far less than what we receive from this practice, from this inner work that we do. Um, What I see is just armfuls of fruit that this practice bears Um, in our daily life. I I know my practice has been that way. It's been a treasure for me. And I hope you have discovered this treasure also in your life. I really like the way um, Tanjef, the wonderful, wise monk who visits IMC um, once a year, comes from his uh, monastery in San Diego. Tanjef puts it this way, we're giving up the candy for the gold, Giving up the candy for the gold. So, begin with a bow to all of you, oh nobly born. So, I'd like to, um, I'd like to share to begin a Zen chant with you, a short chant that really um, expresses um, what. That actually, expresses the source and the inspiration for my whole Buddhist practice. And it goes like this. Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken. Awaken. Take heed. Do not squander your life. So this expression is also what really um uh inspired me to begin you know training and begin work um, as a Buddhist chaplain uh as many of you know, in September, I finished a um a full time year long training program chaplaincy training program um at Sequoia Hospital and so I spent essentially one very intensive year, face-to-face, over and over, with birth, but mostly with aging and illness and death. And as a Buddhist, this really felt so right to me, this this space that I was in and sharing with other people. Because in this space, um, where there's a lot of pain and suffering, but all the trivia of life, Really falls away. Just the really important stuff is present there. The really, the connection heart to heart for the real stuff. And I like being in this space. As a Buddhist, it just feels so perfect to me. So um, I thought that um, this morning that I would share uh, some of my experiences in the hospital, uh, s- some of the training. Um, that I took, because what I found was that um, it really ran right parallel um, with my um, Buddhist practice, Um, an engaged Buddhist practice. It it was an incredible year, and uh, for me, a a year of um, huge personal growth and empowerment. So I thought I'd share some of that with you today. So this program... um, this training program, which I took, basically it consists of 40 hours plus, because sometimes you're, um, as a chaplain, you're on call 24 hours, so you might get a call in the middle of the night and you have to go into the hospital. So it's 40 plus hours a week. And half of that time is spent with um, patients on the hospital floors, and the other half is, is in this, this training Training sessions with peers, with supervisors, and um, also a lot of reading and writing. So in the world of chaplaincy, this training is called uh, CPE, which stands for Clinical Pastoral Education. And so once you've completed this uh, year-long training, you receive a credit, and you need that credit um, in order to um, apply for any professional chaplain job. So traditionally, just to give you a little bit of background on this program, um, until, recent, until recent years, um, this training it was actually created by Christians and mainly sought out by Christian uh, ministers and chaplains. So even if you were a pastor in a congregation and you had no plan to be a hospital chaplain, um, you, you often were encouraged by the church authorities to take this training because really the main thrust of the training is know thyself, know thyself. So therefore, there was a lot of group encounter work. Um, There were one-on-one sessions with the supervisors, which were really psychotherapy sessions. There was a lot of attention uh, attention paid to um, setting boundaries, setting boundaries, very important for chaplains. And there was um, exploration of patterns and conditioning and all the stuff that has its roots in our families of origin. So, in the world of ministry or in the world of spiritual care, uh, if you haven't done this kind of really intensive self-examination, um, which is combined with you know lots of feedback from your peers and supervisors on um, how you actually appear to others versus how you think you appear. Sometimes that can be two very different things. Um, if you haven't you know done this kind of training, uh, intensive self examination, what can happen is that you um, you think that you're caring for others when in reality, your encounters, your visits with them, are really more about you. So, um, of course, as a Buddhist, um, foremost among the qualities that um, I aspire to bring to my encounters with others are compassion and loving-kindness. So I want to be very sure in my spiritual care, in my work, that my visits are about the person I'm with and, and not about me, that I'm really able to be truly present for that person, to really see that person, really hear that person. So um, when I began the program a little over a year ago... Um, I found myself kind of in a sea of Christian ministers and chaplains. And um, Sequoia is actually under the umbrella of Catholic Healthcare West. So there are two other hospitals in addition to Sequoia who have this training program. And several times a year, we would all get together, all the chaplain residents. There were about 30 people. And I was the only non-Christian. And um, that was interesting, interesting. And one of our uh, very first reading assignments uh, was a book called Becoming a Healthier Pastor. And, you know, I thought, wow, (laughs) this is interesting. I I don't know what relevance this is really going to have for me, becoming a healthier pastor. And, you know, my memories of, I I grew up in the Methodist church, and I don't have particularly very fond memories of pastors and churches and and all of that. so I was really, you know, kind of thinking, you know, what did I get myself into? What relevance is this really going to have for me as a Buddhist in my practice? But what I found actually was that there were a lot of parallels to be drawn between well, a lot of things, but particularly this book and, um, and my Buddhist practice. So to look at the book, Becoming a Healthier Pastor, what I discovered was that the author's key concept, um, the concept that he presents as really essential to good ministering, to good spiritual care, is the cultivation of something that he calls a non-reactive differentiated self there we go <laughs> that's, our, that's our practice right non-reactive bare attention um, dropping the commentary just, just being present and, and, um, and it was really kind of like wow yeah that's what I've been practicing all this time and bringing this acceptance of what is uh, dropping the judging and just the ability to let things be So I was encouraged. Okay, this is good. Uh, Then there's the differentiated part. What what is that about? Well, that's really about knowing ourselves in such a very deep way, knowing our patterns of behavior, our triggers, our reactivity, our views and attitudes and values. And so when we know ourselves this well, then we have really a a good chance of, of keeping that out of the way. So we can really be with that other person. So I can really, really see that other person. So essentially, it's just being uh, very mindful of what I call my stuff. So my stuff doesn't get mixed up with the other person's stuff. Um, In psychological terms, this kind of cuts down a lot on the projection and the transference and, and all of that. So know thyself. How do we know ourselves? Well, this is what we're doing in our Buddhist practice, right? Um, As we were sitting here this morning, we're using the Buddhist tools and and techniques to do this deep process of investigation. We sit and we watch with calm and clear eyes whatever arises. And we come to know ourselves um, intimately, our, our emotions, our patterns of thought. Um, we feel our bodies and we, um, we can know what they tell us about what's going on. They can tell us a lot, right? If we're really in touch. And also this practice really becomes uh, a very deep way of caring for ourselves. And what I know from my experience um, working in the world of spiritual care, is that um, if I can't care for myself, then um, chances are I'm not going to be able to really care for someone else um, in a truly skillful way. So, <clears throat> so Rumi, Rumi puts it this way. He says, um, pay regular visits to yourself. So that's That's our practice. So non-reactive, differentiated, emotionally connected. Differentiated but connected and grounded. This is this is really the recipe for good chaplaincy. A chaplain um, who can be in a room full of emotionally warn and distraught people and offer them a calm presence, a grounded presence, um, a presence that can see clearly what's going on. It's not getting caught up or swept up um, <clears throat> in, in the emotions, in the pain. A presence then who can, can see um, whatever support is called for in that situation, can see that clearly. <clears throat> so, um, so this year of training was divided into four quarters, and for each quarter, um, we were asked to identify uh, some learning goals. So, <clears throat> I thought tonight I would, excuse me, this morning, I would share a few of my goals with you, and the ways in which um, the work that I did towards um, meeting those goals really empowered me. Um, in many ways, not only in my um, interactions with with patients in the hospital, but really in my in the wider expanse of my life. And this is why we practice, right? (laughs) So we can bring um, this um, attentive presence um, to our everyday life. I also wanted to just note that the work of a chaplain is is ecumenical. Um, we always look to meet people um, on their own ground, you know, w- within whatever faith tradition um, they have, if they have one. Um, so the truly compassionate heart does not really make a distinction between Buddhist, Christian, um, Buddhist, Muslim, jew whatever there 's no distinction there um, in in the deepest pain and suffering it 's just one heart open to another and so I met really m- wonderful, many wonderful people through this work from the different faith traditions and um, <clears throat> I, I met a Catholic priest actually uh, who was a patient um, in the hospital and we had some really lovely philosophical talks together. And um, when he found out I was a Buddhist, uh, he said to me, uh, Buddha is a known Christ in an unknown Christianity. I really loved that. I really loved it. And uh, I, I, met, I met just really from all faith traditions, um, you know, the colleagues that I worked with, just really so, such... Kind and compassionate, loving people. It was really um, a blessing for me to um, to discover this this whole world. So for for, for Q one, um, I'll share with you my goal. My goal was to put aside my tendency to want to fix things. So um, I have a confession for you confession, you know, I guess I've spent a lot of year with Catholics, but um, um, my confession is that I'm a fixer. And, uh, well, hopefully a um, um, recovering fixer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Recovering fixer. How many fixers are there here? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what I came to know um, as I really really looked at this in my work with other people, is that my uh, need to fix is really a, um, a form of wanting. It's a form of wanting. It's a wanting for things to be other than what they are. It's a wanting for the unpleasant and painful situation in front of me, someone else's painful and um, unpleasant situation. It's a wanting for that to go away. It's hard to be in that, in that space. So this is really about me, isn't it? It's really about my needs and um, not about the person that I'm attending to. You know, the last thing that a very ill or dying person needs is a chaplain who's trying to um, change the situation or put a positive spin on it. Or, um, you know, when you come to a person in the hospital who is really so vulnerable, I mean, when you're in the hospital, think about it you lose everything. Your clothes are gone, your identity is gone, you're a patient. And so people who, um, who are in that space can feel right away if there's someone with them who's wanting something from them and they're not in a position <laughs> to offer something, you know. And they can, they can feel that and they just generally shut down. So my practice became just being with people who um, sometimes were in a very dark Place, a very despairing place and not wanting anything from the situation letting go of my own wanting so that was my goal number one so quarter, the second quarter um, two very empowering goals for this quarter and this was the quarter where we did family of origin work Family of origin. No, just um, looking into and investigating the conditioning and the behavior patterns that um, go all the way back to when we were children. <laughs> it's scary depths. I mean, if you've ever explored those depths, it's scary. It's scary. And it was painful for me. And looking into um, the patterns of behavior that have come out of that and are still with me today. And of course, through my Buddhist practice, I, over the years, I've touched into some of that pain. Certainly, um, as we peel back the layers, um, those painful things come back to us. Um, but uh, So I had some understanding of it, but in the um, kind of the psychotherapy one-on-one sessions that I had with my supervisors, many of the painful details came to light. The details. And I found this to be incredibly empowering, just to bring these details into the light and to look at them in the, in the presence of someone else. Um, and... With the supervisors that I had, I was very lucky. They were very kind and I I trusted them. And um, so just to look at these things from the past and looking not only at the conditioning but looking at the ways in which um, that conditioning was affecting the way that I was um, relating to others even to this day. So I saw my tendency to um, want to run out of the room when there's um, conflict or confrontation. I saw my tendency um, when I was criticized, you know, within the group, I saw my tendency to kind of withdraw into myself, kind of withdraw, or, and to automatically assume, oh, I'm wrong, I screwed up, I'm not good enough, and how this would take me out of relationships with the people in the group and of course the key to being the number one key to being a good chaplain is to stay in relationship with the person that you're attending to no matter what arises no matter what ugly, painful, difficult thing arises and no matter what that experience brings up or resonates in you around your stuff around your stuff so <clears throat> that was Q2. Q3, the focus for this quarter, was the um, so-called painful emotions. So um, as hospital chaplains, we, we spend most of our time um, visiting with patients in the company of these emotions, um, in the company of people who are really shaken to their core, by fear and shame and guilt and despair. So these emotions, these painful emotions, um, are very familiar to me through my Buddhist practice, my investigation over the years. Um, of course we practice with these emotions by kind of disengaging from the situation that triggers them and just working with them in the present, the feeling, the feeling that you have in your body around them, and noticing the suffering around these emotions. So this ground felt uh, familiar to me, but to my surprise, there was more investigation to be done, uh, particularly around the emotion of anger. And I've worked a lot with anger in my practice. Um, Before I came... um, to Buddhist practice, um, I was I was essentially paralyzed by my own anger. Um, If I tried to speak when I was angry, I sputtered. So rather than make a fool out of myself, um, I would usually just withdraw, withdraw from the situation. I might sulk, uh, I might feel bad about myself or about the other person. Um, until the anger kind of dissipated, or um, actually more likely it froze, it froze into resentment. I mean, this is what um, resentment is, really, isn't it? It's um, undealt with, unacknowledged anger. So, when I began my Buddhist practice, I really began to use that practice to investigate my anger, and um, I would still um, withdraw from situations that caused my anger. Um, again, not trusting myself to speak or act in that moment. But then, once once the kind of the uh, height of the emotion had passed, I would really make an effort to reengage with the person um, who made me angry and to kind of like talk about it talk about it in a more calm and reasonable way. Um, But as my supervisor uh, pointed out to me, um, when you're working as a chaplain in the hospital, you probably won't have the opportunity to withdraw and then come back, right? I mean, things are happening very quickly. Um, uh, And so when you're for example, in the emergency room or in the ICU, people um, the people you're with, whether they're the patients or family members or, or whatever, um, they're under a lot of pressure and very difficult and life-threatening situations. And so sometimes they act in inappropriate ways or harmful ways to others or to themselves. And so it's important to be ready to act then, um, from, from your own anger, you're feeling that this isn't appropriate. You have to be ready. You have to be ready to ask someone to leave the room or to, to stop this verbal abuse that's going on. So my goal for Q3 be, became to really to use, to try to use my anger skillfully in the moment as a resource for, um, for really engaging with others, to being in relationship with others. So with, with all the Buddhist practice that I've done and with this year of, of training, I'm no longer swept away by my anger. And I've learned to really... Anger has an incredible energy and, um, behind it. And so um, I've learned to um, speak my anger and use it skillfully as it's happening. And if you want to know what true empowerment is, watch someone who's angry, use that emotion skillfully and compassionately. Watch them speak it and use the energy behind it to stay in relationship. It's a very powerful experience. So my last two months, I'm in Q4, my last two months at the hospital, It's been, um, it was an incredible year. Um, By this time I've cried with grieving relatives over the bodies of loved ones. I was asked to bless um, a beautiful baby boy who was stillborn at nine months. I've read Catholic prayers in Spanish to the Hispanic patients at the hospital. Um, I was able to bring a sense of peacefulness and calm to a woman that I came to know over, she was in the hospital several times, probably four or five times over the course of five months or so. The nurses um, <clears throat> call, call them, these people, frequent flyers. So she was a, a frequent flyer. Each time she came, she was a little weaker. And I had many talks with this woman. And um, after a few months and several hospital visits, um, she was really struggling, really um, overwhelmed, just trying to decide, you know, whether she should continue this, you know, painful and invasive regimen of care, or just to let go, I'll let go of her life, and. She was just overwhelmed thinking about it, thinking about it. And I just came in one morning and I, just, I brought in some peacefulness and calm and we just sat together in silence for a while. And she then was able to really come to a decision and to, to know what she truly wished. And she did decide just to um, stop the treatment and let go. And she died a few, a few days later. So, uh, I felt truly blessed um, by all of these experiences. And, um, as my last assignment, and my last learning goal, my supervisor suggested, he said, why don't you search out and come up with um, three Buddhist archetypes that you can embody in your spiritual care. You know, each one kind of specific to certain kinds of situations that arise in the hospital. Um, because he said to me, you know, that more important than whatever words or actions that you bring uh, to spiritual care, the really the very most important thing is to just bring that Buddhist presence into the room. So, and to discern what Buddhist presence. situation calls for. So uh, the first identity that I came up with um, was really easy. The bodhisattva of compassion. At least one of her thousand arms. One of the thousand arms of the bodhisattva of compassion for those who really feel so alone and afraid in the hospital to just bring an open heart to those people a presence, you know, that cares for someone kind of unselfconsciously, um, without thinking, just bringing that heart into the room. So that was the first identity. The second identity uh, I came up with with was um, the guide, you know, the guide who holds a candle up to the darkness um, for people who... Really need to explore and investigate what's going on here. This very deep, deep, deeply painful. um, Their deepest fears and anxieties. It's just to look at those, and to um, and to really explore and investigate what what are the inner resources that that person has for meeting this very difficult situation. So a guide, a light in the darkness. That was my second one. And the third one <clears throat> um, really came out of my experiences in the emergency room. And the, um, the third one is the fourth heavenly messenger. Remember the fourth heavenly messenger who inspired the Buddha to leave the palace and to seek out some way to free himself and, and others from suffering. Um you know, so in the in the emergency room obviously there's often a lot of chaos and a lot of fear and anger or um, just a lot of chaotic emotional swirling energy, and so to enter that um, space as someone who's calm, who's grounded um, who's peaceful and not swept away by it all. Um, and who knows, who can see how to be supportive um, in whatever ways the situation calls for. So that was my, my third Buddhist archetype to bring to my work. So I'm aware of the time and I wanted to end Um with a quote um, from Khalil Gibran. If you are indeed wise, you do not bid them to enter the house of your wisdom, but rather you lead them to the threshold of their own minds. So... This is the work of the chaplaincy. This is really what the Buddha what the Buddha did for us, right? He gives us the tools and he gives us the techniques and he brings us to the threshold of our own minds. And then the rest is up to us, isn't it? The rest is up to us. So thank you for letting me share my year of CPE, With you. It was an incredible year. And um, I'm just so glad to be here. So thank you. Oh, nobly born.